0: This episode of Everything Hurts is brought to you by Sites.ai, which is a new tool that helps researchers quickly see how a research paper has been cited and if it's been supported or disputed by subsequent research. As an Everything Hurts listener, you can get 30% off their premium package for 12 months, which gives you access to unlimited reports and reference checks. Use the coupon code herts H-E-R-T-Z, to claim this offer.
1: the idea that you you have to you need a journal's permission to publish something is is just silly for the for the internet it, it it came about that way because in the past the journals had to be selective because they had to pay to print and mail everything now with the internet the cost of dissemination are null effectively
0: Welcome to Everything Hurts. My name is Dan Quintana from the University of Oslo. I'm here with James Headers from Cypher Skin and a very special guest, Michael Eisen, who is a biologist at UC Berkeley, an investigator of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute and the editor-in-chief of eLife. Michael, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Before your role at eLife, you were the co-founder of the Public Library of Science, otherwise known as PLoS. Now, of course, PLoS wasn't the first open access journal, but it was certainly the journal that popularized open access in the biomedical sciences. Now, no one starts a journal as a hobby or for a laugh with friends. This is tough (laughs) (laughs) work. Very tough work. So I want to know what motivated your involvement with open access publishing in the first place.
1: So it it started back at the dawn of the internet. I mean, I think we all <laughs> many maybe you guys are too young to remember the dawn of the internet. But you know, when I started, it <laughs> <laughs> Skype takes ten years off your off your complexion. Um, uh, when I you know when I was in graduate school, it was pre modern internet. I mean, we had internet connections, but they were kind of very much a niche thing within the university. And, you know, I spent my entire um, my entire graduate school career living off of papers that I photocopied out of journals from the library, just like everybody did. And, you know, I had stacks of papers on my desk and they were, um, you know, that encompassed my entire PhD thesis was stuff that was gleaned from that, um, from those, those papers and, you know, what I added onto them. Then, you know, I... I, um, finished my PhD and went to do a postdoc and I landed at, at Stanford in 1996. And the, the science we were doing, um, was, you know, a big shift for me. I was switching from, I, I worked on influenza proteins as a graduate student. And I really, it was, I was kind of a radical for having studied two <laughs> instead of just one. And, um, and, uh, you know, I, I came out to Stanford at the dawn of the genomics era and all of a sudden was, um, was studying, you know, thousands or tens of thousands of genes at a time using experimental tools that, that, that have been developed in the lab I was joining. And it just happened to coincide with the birth of the, the, the kind of modern internet. And so the, the, um, the challenge we were facing in the lab was how do you bring to bear all of the, knowledge that might be relevant from the scientific literature to understand an experiment that involved, you know, 10,000 genes. You couldn't store all that in your head, I couldn't print out all those papers on my desk. But, you know, we were lucky because that coincided with the moment when, when um, science journals discovered the internet and started to um, take their content from from printed journals and make them available online and you know it was very early days and and you know we were barely a year into the into the era of online publishing um, but you know it dawned upon us as scientists that we could maybe and I, I'm also a programmer so I could I could take advantage of this information and it dawned upon us that that there was a a potential new era in the way that we consumed the scientific literature that involved Treating the contents of papers as data that we could use to help annotate experiments, so that was very much motivated by a research question. And again, kind of fortuitously, the 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 um the group that was publishing the online editions of many of these um, journals was at the Stanford Library, and so you know it's like a mile away from where my my lab was. So. You know, one day, um, my advisor and a colleague and I marched down to the uh, to the library to meet with the person who was in charge of this online collection of papers. And we actually carried with us a, a jazz drive, which you'll those of you will remember <laughs> 20, as you know, two hundred things, yeah, two hundred fifty megabytes or some crazy amount at the time. And all, what we wanted was for him to just download all of his papers onto. Onto our, onto our disk So we could go back to the lab and do some kind of computer magic and figure out how to use the information. But when we got there and asked, can we have these papers? We were told no. And, you know, honestly, like it was the first time I'd ever thought about the fact that somebody owns the scientific literature, you know, that, that just wasn't relevant when you're, when you're, um, reading printed journals, because the, the, the main problem with using that information is, is. Tactile and practical. Like I you couldn't get access to that data because it was printed, not because somebody owned it. And so you know I couldn't scan ten million pages of journals in order to do some kind of computational analysis. It would have been a, a, a practical challenge. But now all these papers existed on a server sitting in this library, and there was no practical reason why we couldn't download them and use them for our purposes. But now all of a sudden we encountered this this legal and kind of behavioral challenge, which was the publishers believed and in fact did actually own the content that scientists had produced, and this triggered in us a, a kind of you know realization that this was bad. This was bad for not just because it prevented us from using this as data, but because it prevented people from accessing the content, and that the kind of utopian dream of the internet, which we were still able to, able to, uh, to possess at the moment that, you know, anybody with a computer and a telephone line could get access to any information that was available in the world. It seems so obvious that the scientific literature should be the first place we would realize that dream. It was, you know, not, shouldn't have been owned by anybody. It was produced by the public. And, and so we tried a bunch of different things to get the scientific community to realize that this was not a good situation. And that included lobbying the government. And, you know, we thought at first, like, people just haven't thought about it. We hadn't thought about it. Now, if we just tell everybody that this is bad, that somehow that'll fix it. But that was obviously not going to happen. And, and we tried to and succeeded in getting the government to propose a, uh, the, the US government to propose a, uh, uh, a solution in which they would basically become pub hosts or publishers of of all biomedical research content and and it would all be freely available and 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 things would be great but that was shot down by the journals who you know make a lot of money off of that content and so um after you know 4 or 5 years of trying to convince other people to solve this problem for us We, and I admit somewhat reluctantly came to the conclusion that we kind of had to just do it ourselves in order to make this, make this happen. And that's, that's how PLOS was born was out of that frustration and realization and the fact that nobody was fixing this problem that, that led us to think we had to, we had to try to show the world that there was a different way of doing it.
2: I I love the deployment of the phrase somewhat reluctantly there. (laughs) Um, yeah, so. this, this is uh, ideologues crash and burn in this space i mean they have done for a very long time Had you you tried very hard to get that started and at the the end well, like the frustration would have at its peak you went oh god yeah. all right <laughs> fine which is yeah. like the exact right emotional space to be able to get anything done
1: i i think that's true i mean i think i think you know i mean first of all this was happening while I was just starting a faculty position. So it's not like I didn't have other things to do. And, (laughs) um, and, you know, I'm utterly and completely uh, untrained. Like, it's not like I, I I never took a business class. Like, you know, the first, the, the, the first kind of thing we, we had to do was, you know, get a startups for dummy kind of book. And, you know, and we started (laughs) floss as a nonprofit because, you know, the, the, we had, it gave us access to money from foundations and, so, forth. Mm. But, you know, we had a we we had a start a business from scratch, not knowing anything about what what we were doing and trying to, um, you know, trying to play in a world that we, you know, I think the funniest thing for us was that we had a sort of play in a publishing world that we quite literally wanted to destroy. <laughs> and so, you know, if I if I had had a button back then that that said, you could just vaporize this whole industry. And it will just disappear, and every bit of every journal, every publisher would have just vaporized, and given us the, you know, and then said to the science community, "Okay, now go start from scratch and build something better." I think it would have taken us a few months of chaos, uh, but we would have figured it out. So, uh, you know, I think it was it was a little bit of an odd, an an odd thing to have to to, to kind of work within an existing system to try to destroy it, which. I realize it's kind of a often what startups do, but but it's um it's, it's sort of psychically weird for a scientist to to kind of to kind of do
2: that. So. No, it's a, it's psychically perfectly straightforward for a scientist to be extremely angry about stuff. Would you would you push that button now?
1: Oh yeah, I, I, I <laughs> like like I mean honestly like honestly like I feel like everything I've ever tried to do in publishing has been about trying to realize what that, you know, trying to make that button into an actual thing. And, and, you know, it's, it's, uh, I still think, you know, we, we are plagued with the legacy of the historical accident that the printing press was invented before the internet. And that if it had gone the other way around, we would have developed a system, a a native system of publishing that was, that was that, that mapped to the technology we had in front of us, and it would have been way better. But, you know, right now we're still, 25 years after the internet became a thing in everybody's minds, we're still handcuffed by, by the, the historical legacy of, of you know, it's not, it's not the technology itself, but the fact that the science community shaped itself around the technology, right? The fact that jobs and grants and awards and other things are doled out in science According to where you publish your papers. And that is a pure vestige of an era when, when journals were a physical entity that had to be printed and shipped around the world and acquired identities and brands and exclusivity. All that is so antithetical to the way the internet, you know, functions and should function. And, and it's just kind of a weird, it remains the weirdest thing for me that, you know, if you trace back to the origins of the internet, I mean, it quite literally was invented for science scientists to communicate. All right, defense Ooh. scientists, but scientists nonetheless, who were who were looking for a better way to share information and ideas and data. That is tangibly the the purpose of the internet. And the, the, the you can make a strong case that the thing on which the internet has had the least impact is the thing that it was it was invented to 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 do. Right, science publishing. Is, is, is is shockingly unchanged by the, by the internet, even in, even in the way papers look. I mean, the fact that we still call them papers and that they still are paginated and look like, uh, like they did, you know, I don't know. I've made this joke before, but, but I, you know, Francis Bacon, the great, you know, British scientist is kind of often credited with having inspired the first, um, journals. He was, at the Royal Society at the time that 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 the, the, their proceedings were 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 invented, and I've you know if you imagine Francis Bacon coming to modern society, to modern world, I mean, so everything would just a- astonish him, right? The technology you have at your at your disposal, I mean, cell phones and cars and everything, a- and he would he would find solace and comfort in science journals because they look very recognizable to what they look like. 350 years ago. And that is a really bad thing.
0: Like many researchers, Google Scholar is my first port of call when I'm looking for papers. But the issue with Google Scholar is that it places a high premium on the raw number of citations when it comes to its search rankings. This is a big problem, though, because not all citations are equal. What if many of these citations were disputing the original paper or just mentioning the paper in passing? Of course, you could read each of these citing papers, but that would take a lot of time. Fortunately, site.ai can do all this for you almost instantly. Utilizing deep learning, Cite can show you at a glance how a paper has been cited, and specifically if it's been supported, disputed, or merely mentioned. Cite.ai also shows the context of the citation from each paper. You can plug in a single paper or even a whole reference list, which is really handy for when you're reviewing or writing a paper. I recently installed their free browser plugin so that you can exactly see how a paper has been cited directly in Google Scholar or PubMed, Nature, eLife and several other academic publishers. So check out the browser plugin. Have a look at AI for yourself where you can generate five reports a month for free, which includes the context for each citation. If you want access to unlimited reports and reference checks, site.ai is offering 30% off their premium package for 12 months for Everything Hurts listeners. Just use the coupon code HURTS. That's H-E-R-T-Z. For more details, check out the show notes. I've uh, I've recently started reading this really interesting book on the history of the scientific journal by Alex Scissor. I, I pronounce yep. that very well. Um, um, and what I found really funny was that even around the period of the Royal Society, when there was maybe two or three journals, a, a few in England and a few in France, when they were proposing new journals, people were like, "Oh, hang on, hang on, we already have too many journals. Let, let, yep. Let's calm down a bit." Right. So w- yeah. w- within within that space, around two thousand and twelve. We have eLife starting up. Yeah. Um. At the time, you you weren't the founding editor. You are the editor now. No. Um. What was the need for an additional journal at that time around 2012 with with eLife?
1: Oh well, there's never a need for an additional journal. Just to be clear, I mean, you know, we have we have we have um uh. I think I just read in the in the publishing industry's like annual report. There are 10,000 publishers, let alone 10,000 journals. Wow. There's, I think mm. there's 50 to 100,000, somewhere between 50 to 100,000 journals, right? We don't need them. That, that, right? So we definitely don't need that many journals. But the problem is, just like we faced with PLOS and they faced with eLife, right? It's very hard to just sort of take over an existing journal and, and change it to some new principle. So if you're trying to do something new, you kind of have to start something new. And so, I, I, you know, I'll, I'll admit, I, I was not a hundred percent a fan of eLife when it launched. I, I in part mm. because of this, because of this, um, um, you know, issue that I think that, um, the, the world didn't need more journals. We already had open access journals. We already had high profile open access journals. You know, at the time I was on the board of PLOS and that we had one. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't see the, the logic in adding to that however there was one thing about elife from its inception that i was I, I really thought was fantastic and was a reason why you you kind of needed a new organization which was that the the um you know if you if you go back to the to the beginnings of this problem to me the biggest the biggest issue that has always existed is that the solution was kind of left in the hands of scientists, and even, you know, publishers here and there, but that the real solution here has to come from the, the funders and the backers of science, right, that that they for the first 15 years of this fight, they kind of sat back and said, we're funding science, you know, it's important that you publish, but we're not getting involved in the question of how and where you publish your work. That's not our choice. And you know, it was kind of motivated by kind of bizarre notions of academic freedom, I think, or I'm not really sure why they weren't involved. But the critical Mm. thing about eLife in in my mind was that three of the world's biggest private, you know, nonprofit funders of science. So Howard Hughes Medical Institute, Welcome, and um, Max planck you know, collectively came together and said, this system is broken the way that, that we encourage our scientists to publish and and their work is it ends up producing works that are not available to the to the community. And that is antithetical to what we are trying to accomplish as as research funders. And even though I think there are things that they didn't get right in the way that they you know, I think they were they were a little bit too conventional, if anything, in the way that eLife was, was launched. The the very fact that the funders were standing behind it and saying look we're putting our money into science publishing directly not by paying subscription costs or page charges or something like that but but actually we're putting our money behind an effort to make science publishing work better and that that is and has been inc- critical to the to the um you know to the kind of evolution of this industry to the point now where i think you're starting to see funders um, realizing that they have to play an active role, that th- that this is not a market that is working efficiently or effectively, and it is not one where the incentives for the players, either the scientists who are publishing or the publishers, are aligned with what the backers of science really want to accomplish, which is to have a uh, scientific literature that's freely accessible, that is is you know, is, is robust and annotated and peer reviewed and all the things that they want to accomplish that the industry is not accomplishing that, that the economic incentives and the professional incentives for everybody involved are misaligned with what, what the system should be accomplishing. And so for that, for change to happen, it's going to have to involve the people who actually ultimately pay the, pay the bills for science and who determine who gets funded, whose careers um, are successful. So, We're not there yet, but that's, but it's been a, that, that is a big, a big transition that's happened in the last decade has been that, that the funders have, have started to care about, about the system.
2: That, that's a, I've never heard that leverage point put into that order before. And by that, I mean, if you're, um, HHMI or Max Planck or whoever else and, you are producing a lot of you're your funding a great deal of the research and either your indirect or sometimes direct payments are ending up putting money into uh, the support for like gold OA elsewhere. Yeah. You're already paying into it. you're making a decision actually not about trying to save money or do anything else, but a much more basic financial decision about how you choose to how you choose to deploy your support. Yeah, because I mean, especially if the uh, if nature get their way and we end up with a eleven thousand dollar OA fees, which are big labs will pay anyway. At some point in time, if that is deployed uh, as thoroughly mental as it seems to be, if that is actually deployed, those organisations that you just mentioned will actually be providing that money.
1: Yeah, but that's but where no, it's
2: but- coming from.
1: Note that they already are, like, this is one of the things we tried to point out from the beginning, which was that the whole push for open access was not really about saying we don't want to pay for these things, right? Everybody always confuses, you know, this is a, a problem across all sorts of domains. People confuse the idea that something could be free for users with the idea that it's free to produce. And I think that in, in, Classical subscription publishing, it was generally free to authors, but not to readers in in um, what 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 we what you know, what we tried to convince everybody of. And I think, you know, finally, that I think people understand this is that, you know, it's always going to be true that the people who support science financially, the funders and the and, you know, academic institutions and other research endeavors, that they are going to that that they're going to have to pay to make sure that the science they fund gets communicated and that it gets communicated in an effective way. Otherwise, what's the point? If you're just giving people money to do research and it gets buried in a drawer and nobody reads it, you're not really doing anything. So it's obviously part of the scientific endeavor to fund the communication of the results of that, that work. So, you know, at the time PLOS started and open access started, you know, there was already 8 or 9 billion dollars a year going into science publishing almost entirely via subscriptions. our argument was that you know that that those that money is transferred under in a, that the mechanism by which that money is transferred imposes limitations on how the content are going to be used. If you decide to transfer money from funders to publishers via subscriptions You're guaranteeing that a large fraction of the world has to be shut out of the, shut out of access because why else would you pay subscriptions? The, the alternative that we introduced with, with upfront charges, I mean, we felt it was more logical in the sense that, you know, publishers are providing a service to the, to funders. There's no reason why they have to own the, the output at the end of the day. So our, our argument was and still is that, that if, you know, funders make decisions about how they're going to support the, the the publishing um, system when they make those decisions they're implicitly kind of deciding the, the the rules under which the content actually gets used and disseminated and that 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 you can you you know that nobody's arguing that that this money shouldn't shouldn't be used to promote publishing maybe less of it i don't know but but I guess 10 billion dollars a year is a lot of money to support publishing but but that we that the funders really need to make a decision um, about how they're going to fund the system and and acknowledge that they're doing it one of the most amazing things to me was from the beginning how little you know funders didn't even acknowledge that that this was a system that they were paying for in part because the money was laundered in these weird ways through libraries Mm. but like the libraries weren't getting their money out of their own their own, uh, you know, they weren't selling cookies, right? They were getting this money from the NIH and from funders. And, and so, you know, to me, like, the big thing is, even the model we have now, the APC model, it has its flaws, because it's kind of, you just pointed out this $11,000 nature thing. The, the, the crazy thing about that is it's not crazy, right? That is it, right? Like, that is what I, I, I take nature to, su- to some extent at their word that that's kind of what it costs for them to do it. I don't think it's an unreasonable estimate of what it costs them to publish an article. The, the kind of absurd thing about it is is that it's totally worth it for a lot of people to pay, right? If like your career advances by more than $11,000 by getting a nature paper, and that's the problem, right? The problem yeah. isn't that nature, that nature is charging $11,000. It's that it's actually in it, people's interest to pay it. Right. So yeah, so yeah. of
2: course, I mean, look when yeah. when this happened in the first instance, I said a couple of things. One, if they've made that decision, this is a very large organization that has a CFO and accountants and a financial department, and uh, they they operate over a bunch of different regulatory environments and a bunch of different countries. And if they say it's worth eleven thousand dollars, the market will support that. Yeah. I work for a business now. They didn't just feel well, like we, we wouldn't, we, there's 14 people in this office. We wouldn't pick a number like that out of the, we would, no, no, we no. would do research. Nature to do much, much better research than we'd be capable of. And they said, that's what it costs. The second thing is, of course, uh, if you've got the money to do that, that, uh, if, if you're supported by a large program grant, it isn't your money. Right. It's, it's someone else's money. It's something that you might write it as a line item into a grant. You might grouse about it because you want to spend it on something else. But at the end of the day, people who have the right amount of support are spending someone else's money. Right. And, and it's obviously, look, I mean, it's a, it's a five-figure charge for uh, huge chunks of the world. It's gone from an impossible dream for practical reasons to an impossible dream for two practical reasons so <laughs> it says bloodless to point it out but um it, it, it does the, but, but the again like which it, it doesn't change something
1: it, it is also important to point out that that you know nature papers are not accessible to most scientists not because yeah. it costs eleven thousand dollars to to publish them but because it costs hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars to do the research mm-hmm. that that is required to meet the standards that the journal has decided are true this is a really big problem in science. You know, you oh, will yeah. occasionally see you will occasionally see papers coming in in nature or other high profile journals from from labs that don't have a tremendous amount of research funding. But but that that is a rarity that that I, I you know, I, I saw studies on this years ago. So I don't know what the number is today. But at some point, I saw an estimate that it was about $350,000 worth of investment went into every paper that was published in nature. And this was a decade ago. So I think that number has accelerated not just because of inflation, but because science has gotten more expensive. And so I think I, I think, you know, it sounds it sounds obscene to charge eleven thousand dollars for 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 a paper. And it is obscene for all sorts of reasons. Um but it's it, it, it kind of I mean I think it it highlights that this is that this model itself has kind of reached its reach the limit of 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 what it can sustain and and i think that this is why i I would really like the funders to start to you know know, right now the funders are kind of acquiescing a little bit to this nature charge in part because you know they like having nature papers too for their authors so i think that what we need to figure out is, is a system where where the funders just own up to the fact that they are paying for this system and just pay for it directly. So that nobody has has to pay to publish a paper, nobody has to pay to read a paper. The money is there. The money is being spent already. It's just a question of how do they how do they decide to deploy it. Right? They don't you don't run a database of protein structures, you know, like was used to solve, you know, for this Alpha Fold thing that just came out last week. Right? Mm-hmm. You don't run a database like that by charging people to put their structures in or by charging people to to use the data. You could, I mean, you could have a business that worked that way, but it would be an ineffective one for, for, for achieving its ultimate goals. I think we have to say the same thing about publishing that they, they fund that they have the money, they spend the money. If, if the funders got together and just said, look, we want to support publishing infrastructure and journals, we're going to come up with a system by which we'll pay people who participate in the right way in the system. But nobody will ever have to pay to publish and nobody will ever have to pay to read. That'll be a sort of irreducible first principle. The money's there. It's just about will and organization.
0: Now, speaking of where money is is going to for publication, uh, eLife recently announced this author-driven publishing approach in yep. which submitted papers will have to be posted as preprints. Can you tell us a little bit about this?
1: Right. So, I mean, I, I, ironically, this is kind of where we started in our thinking about where publishing should go, you know, 25 years ago, it's sort of the, 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 the thing that the internet really changes fundamentally about, about publishing is that it becomes easy to easy for individuals to publish. something. Right? I mean, that's kind of what the internet is. It's a great medium for, for anybody with a connection to the internet to publish something. And I think that, that, you know, when we first started thinking, okay, if we could design a new system from scratch, what would it look like? it would be authors sharing their work whenever they feel their work is ready to be shared. And then the scientific community in as individuals or organizations takes on the task of assessing whether or not the science was right and good and to whom it's useful and sort of improving it in all the ways that we currently use peer review to do things before they're published. They make much more sense to do them after they're published in the sense that, first of all, you get rid of this it, this 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 delay of, of of nine months or something now between when papers are submitted to a journal and when they're published it's, it's quicker to send a, a a rover to mars than it is to publish a science, science paper and it's actually cheaper but i could go, go into that one but but um but um right i i've I, this is actually true i've did the, this math if you if you printed all the papers that were published in a given year and loaded them into into uh, rockets and sent them to Mars along with little rovers, and then the rovers spread the papers out on the surface of Mars and took pictures of them and sent them back to Earth. That would not only that would not only be cheaper to do than p- spending ten billion dollars a year on science publishing, it would actually be faster. And so it's the, <laughs> and it the, would the be this, adorable. It would be adorable, exactly. Tiny little rovers putting papers all over the surface. So, Talk about spreading but, knowledge to the universe. But to get back to the point, so so right. The 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 idea that you you have to you need a journal's permission to publish something is is just silly for the for the internet. It, it it came about that way because in the past the journals had to be selective because they had to pay to print and mail everything. Now with the internet, the cost of dissemination are null effectively, and so so we always thought that the right model was to have authors publish their work first and then have peer review and curation happen after it was published. Indeed. Some communities already have been doing this, just intrinsically—physics, computer science, math. It's basically the way those communities ha- function and have functioned for forever. For for various reasons, that has taken longer to take hold in in biology. I mean, the original proposal from Harold Varmus back in 1999 for the NIH to run a publishing system was basically that it was preprints mm-hmm. or author-driven publishing followed by peer review. Um, biology was resistant to preprints. They were resistant to anything that, that took kind of money away from publishers. I mean, I, I, won't say individual biologists were, but the system as a whole, because there was so much money going into publishing and the scientific societies and others were very influential in kind of blocking efforts to, to, to make the system more open. It took a while for, um, um, biomedical scientists to get comfortable with the idea that they could just post their papers and publish them when they felt they were ready, and that you know the, the that the universe wouldn't collapse as a as a result of doing that. And so you know, over the last five years, because of the work at Cold Spring Harbor from Bioarchive and Medarchive, and and the you know, I think the embrace of that system by biologists, you know, not not completely, but that that now the groundwork has been laid to go back to the original idea, which is authors should be in control of when they publish the work. Then it's our job as scientists, but also publishers, it's not to decide what should or shouldn't be available to you, but to help you under you know, to help have scientists read papers and provide kind of feedback on what was and wasn't achieved and what was and wasn't useful and so forth. So, you know, we at eLife, you know, we we looked recently and and asked just how many of our authors are pre-printing their work. And the answer is, of the papers that we have sent out to review, about 70% of them are already available. So, mm-hmm. I, you know, w- without formally, you know, announcing this is what we were doing, we were already no longer a publisher in the sense that the vast majority of the papers we ultimately were publishing or publishing in quotes were already published by the authors. We were just you know, it, it, it putting a seal on them of 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 our of our selection and approval, and so I, I felt, you know, you know, we're doing that, but you know, our systems and our our conceptualization of what we're doing, we're still stuck in the old model, and that we were still behaving as if what the job of a peer reviewer was was to decide whether or not something should be published. And that affects the way that peer review is conducted. It affects the way that peer reviews are written. And so we really wanted to just embrace the challenge that is um, that is um, put forward by by the fact that we have, you know, we want, what we are doing is, is reviewing papers that are already being published. And yet, for the most part, the peer reviews are kind of staying hidden. They're kind of a correspondence between the reviewers and the authors. We wanted to move that conversation online, make it public, make the fact that you know we're assessing works that are already published by by authors a feature of what we're doing in a world where everybody's starting to see preprints, but there's some trepidation about you know acting on unrefereed reports. We wanted to try to promote the idea that what we can do as a publisher is quickly turn unrefereed preprints into refereed preprints, and I, I just felt it was time for us to. To, to not just dither around that, that this is what we're doing, that we need to actually, there's a lot of things we have to figure out in order to have, you know, to do that well and to make the kind of peer reviews we have actually be useful to readers, not just things we pack on the side of a paper in the in the name of of peer review. And so I thought the only way we were going to do that was to make that what we do and not to have it be a sideshow or kind of an aspiration. But, the and again, you know, Go back to eLife's origins. We were put on eLife was was put on Earth not to just be the 40,000 and one journal, but to be a, a catalyst for changing the way that science communication happens. And 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 I felt quite strongly and, and, you know, indeed, everybody at eLife feels strongly that that this is the best way for us to do that.
2: Oh, it's also only affecting 30% of your authors. So, I mean, it, it yeah, was presented that, right? in terms of, yeah, it was presented like, in terms of, well, there's a certain radicalism here. Actually, not, not
1: so much. That's the beauty of it. It's not that radical, right? Like, <laughs> it's radical in concept, but not in reality. I mean, I think it's, it mm. shifts the way people think about something, but it's a very fact that 70% of our authors were already posting preprints that means it's not, it's not, it's not that radical. And I would say we don't know yet exactly what fraction of the 30% just failed to post a preprint out of, you know, inertia, right? Like it's likely that many of them will, will post them anyway. I mean, it's not to say there aren't some people who are dead set against preprints or have constraints that prevent them from doing so. So this isn't going to be for everybody, but it doesn't have to be. <laughs> the, 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 there's a, the, the, there's a, you know, a, a, a other options for people who are uncomfortable with, with preprints, but I don't think, I think, you know, by and large, the authors who are interested in publishing in eLife are, perfectly happy with preprints and so we don't expect this is going to have an impact on on submissions what you know if, if there's a if there's a if there's a radical thing here it's not that it's that it's trying to shift the gaze of the reader away from the journal as the as the kind of entity and towards the paper and to get people to, to think about papers as the prime the, the author manuscript and as the primary object and the thing that that happens during peer review is that we add annotation, we add curation, we add information to a, a, a paper, and I, I hope that we can achieve that pretty quickly. That we can get people to kind of start thinking about the paper as the locus of of publishing, and our job is being a, you know I hope a trusted source for adding information to it, but not as kind of a primary producer of of documents in the first place which isn't really what we do anyway
0: that's all for today's episode with michael eisen there was so much gold in this chat that we just kept going but this would have been too long for a single episode part two of our chat will be released on the 4th of january in the new year so if you haven't subscribed to the podcast already make sure you do that so that you don't miss the rest of our conversation keep safe